You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, good morning, church family. My name is Jack Collett, and I serve on the Connections team here at Northway. And today I'll be doing our scripture reading for us. So if you will join me in Genesis 25, I'll be reading verses 19 through 26. If you don't already have a Bible, there will be one in the seat in front of you. I'll give you a minute to turn there. All right, perfect. Starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's sons. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you are well. We're going to try to make a hard turn after uh, some emotional news this morning, but I hope As we have seen all throughout our study in the book of Genesis, we will see encouragement even in that news of the invincibility of God's promises and that no threat that may come against us, even cancer diagnosis, um, can thwart the purposes of God uh, in our lives and for our good and for his glory. And so to that end, we are in Genesis 25. This is an interesting text. If you have ever wondered why there is so much tension in the Middle East and not so much necessarily just from a geo-modern geopolitical standpoint, but really from a theological standpoint. The Genesis 25 is going to be a key chapter in understanding that for us. If you've ever wondered what God's purposes are in reaching a lost world with the good news of Jesus Christ, including the Middle East, and yes, including even those of us in these seats right here in Dallas, Texas then Genesis 25 is a key chapter for us. Genesis 25 is a pivot point in the narrative of Genesis as we have traced the promises of God from Genesis 3 about a serpent crusher who would come and defeat evil once and for all and undo sin's curse. We've been tracing that all throughout and each step of the way we pivot through these various lines that we're tracing. And now we're going to see another pivot as well. We're going to transition from one family of promise to another. We're going to close out the story of Abraham in this chapter. We're going to close out the story of Ishmael. And we're even going to begin to close out the story of Isaac, even though he just began uh, last week. But we'll begin transitioning here. This story is about nations threats, and the electing grace of God. I want to begin here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 
25, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Madon, Minion, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadon. The sons of Dadon were Asherim, Letushim, Lemimim. The sons of Midian were Aphah, Epher, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And so we see the closing out of Abraham's legacy here. And we see that sometime after his wife Sarah dies and before he himself dies, he remarries another woman, Keturah. Now, in general, remarriage after a long marriage and losing one spouse and then remarrying again can be difficult uh, for some children to accept. Well, you, you've seen this great legacy of this couple, Abraham and Sarah, and it's kind of like, now, what are you doing? And by the way, you're about 150. You really want to have more kids at this stage? You want to you have more, some more grandkids at this stage? Man, come on, just hang it up, brother. Enjoy some time. But we know from chapter 17, when God made his covenant with Abraham, God promised Abraham that he would be a father of not just the Jewish nation, but he would be a father of many nations. God prophesied that. And one of that means of having fathered multiple nations are through the other sons that he had. Not only Ishmael, but now six additional sons through Keturah. And these six sons, sadly... Uh, we're highlighting two of them through Jokshan's line and Midian's line. It's going to be future enemies of Israel. And, and so we see here, Abraham, he blesses them, he gifts them, and then he sends them away. He doesn't send them away to be cruel, but in the same manner that he did with Ishmael and Hagar, he's sending them away in order to safeguard the promise that is guaranteed through Isaac and the land that they're in. And they head eastward, which is a theme that we've seen since the early chapters of Genesis. East is always indicative of going away from the promise of God. The promise of God is right here in the land of Canaan. And so this final scene of Abraham's life is his burial. He's buried in the same cave that he buried his wife. It's the only piece of property that Abraham ever legally owned, a well and a burial cave here in the land of Canaan. And that's important because even in death, Abraham went to his grave believing in the promises of God. 
Hebrews 11 reminds us of this. In chapter 11, it says, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It goes on to say, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So this cave, this burial site was to Abraham a down payment, a first fruits on the future, the full and future promise that he and his descendants believed in faith that God would provide. And the same is true with us. Unless the Lord tarries in his return, you and I will be buried here on this earth and we will go to our grave still believing, still holding fast that the God who promised that one day this whole earth would be made new and his glory will dwell here among us. We believe in faith that will happen as God has promised. And therefore our investments on this earth while we're alive for his kingdom are not in vain. They are down payments. They are first fruits of the glory that is yet to be revealed. When we believe, as Jesus said, the meek indeed shall inherit this earth. And we believe that in faith. Now, I want you to notice in that text we just read who was present at the burial site. Not only Isaac, but Ishmael was present as well. These two sons back together. Both loved their dad. Their dad loved both of them. Both were blessed by God in unique ways. And the question that's still being put forward for us is whose line will the promise go through, Ishmael or Isaac? Now, we already saw in chapter 17, God emphatically promised the promise of the future Messiah will go through Isaac, not Ishmael. And verse five in this text supports this, that even though Abraham gave gifts to all his sons, including Ishmael, he gave all his inheritance to Isaac. He doubles down. Isaac is the heir of promise. And in case there's any doubt in that, verse 11 makes it emphatic. When we are told that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. And so God, God has blessed Abraham for a hundred years. A hundred years since Abraham first came to Canaan. And God has blessed him richly. The question is, would that blessing continue for Isaac? And verse 11, verse 11 emphatically says, yes. God blesses Isaac now as the baton is passed. And so Isaac goes and he settles in Be'er Lahai Roy. It's the same place we saw Isaac last week in chapter 24 when he was out in the field meditating upon God's word and communing with God It's the same place that Hagar went to in chapter 16 when she cried out to the Lord and he saw her and he heard her. And so Isaac heads there now. That's where he's gonna set up shop for his family where he will worship the Lord all of his days. And so what comes next in this chapter here are two major divisional breaks. Remember from the outset of Genesis, I mentioned the entire book of Genesis is outlined by what is called these Hebrew toledotes. Toledot is the Hebrew word that means generations. 
And so as we are tracing the promise of this serpent crusher, this Messiah, who's going to come into the world at some point, and it's going to come through Eve's descendants, we've traced that through these generations. These are the generations of, these are the generations of. You've got two more of them. There's 10 in total in Genesis, two more in this chapter. Verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. Verse 19, the generations of Isaac. And what Moses is doing, he's highlighting where the forks in the road happen. We're gonna see the generations of Ishmael and you're gonna see what happens to his legacy, but it's meant to be juxtaposed against the generations of Isaac because it's through his line that the promised Messiah will come. And so we see Ishmael's legacy. Look at this in verse 12 and following. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbiel, and Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over and against all his kinsmen. Now, why is this here? This is Ishmael's legacy. After this, you're not going to hear about Ishmael again. And remember, back in chapter 21, God promised Hagar that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. And what you are meant to see right here in Genesis 25 is God does just that. Isaac down through his son, Jacob. Jacob's gonna have 12 sons. Those are gonna be the 12 tribes of Israel. That's on Isaac's side. But on Ishmael's side, he too is gonna to have 12 sons and they are gonna be the 12 princes of the Arab world. Now God, remember, he also promised in Genesis chapter 16 that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. I don't know that that's necessarily the prophetic legacy that I want for me, but it is for Ishmael. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, meaning that he's going to roam and he's going to settle. And then where he settles, it was prophesied he would do so over and against his kinsmen. His hand would be against his kinsmen. And so that prophecy occurs here. Now, the place where Ishmael is going to settle, and this is important, is in the desert of Saudi Arabia. I want you to see this on a map. Uh, from Havila to Shur, this is the northern part that stretches of Saudi Arabia from Egypt side all the way heading east. And Ishmael and his descendants are gonna settle there and start descending downward through Saudi Arabia. He and his sons are going to become the father of the Arab world. He's gonna settle near the ancient cities of what we would call today Mecca and Medina. And it's about 2,500 years after this text 
in 570 AD that one of Ishmael's descendants will be born here, named Muhammad. And in 610 AD, Muhammad will have a vision for a new religion of Islam. And so the geopolitical religious tension of Ishmael's descendants seeking to settle over and against his kinsmen, that shot was called 4,000 years ago. And that tension still exists 4,000 years later today. And so it gives you a bit of an origin story here. The whole point of this text is not only to close out the story of Abraham and the lines of all his sons, but to give us some reference point, to give the original readers reference points as to the origin of the surrounding nations and some of the hostilities that they are going to incur, incur in the days ahead. But in verse 19... Here's the main point of this text. It is to see the promised line that continues through Isaac, not Ishmael. As much as God blessed Ishmael and all those made in the image of God that make up the, much of the arid world today, it is the line through Isaac that the promised Messiah would come in whom all of us would find our redemption. And so we're going to see in this story another origin story of another formidable ancient millennia-long enemy of Israel that will come through Isaac's son. And so in doing so, we're also going to see God's sovereign purposes of his electing grace that reaches all the way down through history even to us in this room as seen in this story. Pick up in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So chapter 24, last week, we saw Isaac receive his wife. We saw him do so at the age of 40. That was important last week. We're going to find out in verse 26 that Isaac is going to be 60 years old when he finally has his first child. And so what we're meant to see here is that just as Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah, had to wait 25 years through infertility before they could conceive and have this promised child. So too is God going to have Isaac and Rebekah wait themselves 20 years through infertility before they too will have their promised child. Certainly, this is a theme all throughout Genesis. God's sovereign hand in the midst of infertility. And while certainly the pain of infertility uh, can be understood and there can be a lot to see here, remember this is directly about a specific promise of a specific child through whom God is going to bring forth the Messiah. And that's what we're meant to see here. And we see it with Sarah. We see it with Rebecca. You're going to see it in the days ahead with Leah and Rachel and Isaac, like his father, he now knows that the promised line is going to come through him. 
But now a threat, just like for his dad, is presented to him that is outside of his control. And the question is, what will he do in, in light of this threat of infertility and barrenness? And I want you to notice in this text what he doesn't do, because I think that's what the reader is meant to see here. He doesn't do what his father did, which is through impatience, try and manipulate the promise of God by going and having a child with another woman, a concubine. You're not going to see that with Isaac. In fact, Isaac's going to be the only patriarch to remain monogamous throughout his marriage. He knows Rebecca is the woman that God has appointed for him. He knows that God made a promise to provide a, uh, a promised child. And so his response is not to manipulate, but to wait and to pray. For 20 years, he's going to pray on behalf of his wife that God would grant them a child. And I think it's important that one of the reasons God does this with Isaac and Rebecca is so they don't just draft off Abraham and Sarah's faith. But they're gonna have to learn how to trust and forge their own faith in God. Sometimes waiting, even though it kills us as Western Americans, is actually a gift of God because it forms your own faith. It forges your own faith. So you don't just draft off your parents' faith. There's a time and season for it right now. I've got a, my second oldest daughter who graduates this weekend, this next weekend. And what we've done and what we are doing with all of our daughters as they graduate, we have several rites of passage. And when they graduate is another one for us. And my wife and I do a kind of private ceremony with our graduating senior. And it's a lot of speaking blessing over her and praying over her. But one of the things I'm careful to communicate with my daughter is that, hey, for 18 years, your mom and I have tried to raise you as best we know how. We've tried to point you towards Jesus Christ as best we know how. But there is now a time when you're going to have to stand on your own legs of faith. When everything that we've cultivated, you're going to have to go forge it. And you're going to have to forge it through suffering. God is going to test you. And it's going to hurt. And that is where your intimacy with Jesus is going to be forged. You can't just draft off your mom and I's faith. You're going to have to go forge your own. And you see this here with Isaac and Rebecca as well. And the truth is for us is yes, your faith can run concurrent to your parents' faith. Your faith can run concurrent to your spouse's faith, but it cannot be vicarious. You cannot live by osmosis when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. That you're gonna have to forge your own trust and faith in the Lord where you're gonna have to learn to trust and pray and abide and obey in the midst of suffering. And so Isaac does, and Isaac prays for 20 years because this is what you do when you realize your impotence, when you're powerless. You cry out to the one who's sovereign over all things. You trust in his character that he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84. David wrote in Psalm 40 these famous words in his own suffering. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And he goes on to say, blessed is the man 
who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Blessed are you when you don't listen to the lies of temptation in the midst of your weakness, but you cling to the Lord who is your rock and your shelter, and he grows your faith as you wait upon him. Now, while this is a specific promise that is given to Isaac, the principle still applies to us of learning to pray, to trust, to wait upon the Lord, especially something that is very hard for us in our Western Americanism. But after 20 years, the Lord hears his prayer and the Lord answers. And notice in verse 22, not just with one, the Lord goes, hey, I see your request for one child and I raise you. I'm gonna double down on this with twins. You see that children in verse 22, plural. And now what we're going to see is there is something bigger brewing in Rebecca's womb than just a miracle conception of twins. Look at this, verse 22, the children struggled and they struggled together within her. And she said, if it is this, then why is this happening to me? And so she went and she inquired of the Lord. So we don't know exactly what's going on within her womb right here, but apparently this is more than just Braxton Hicks. This is more than just contractions. This is more than just a difficult pregnancy or the kids somehow turning breech like I did in my mom's womb. No, this is something bigger. The word struggle here means an oppressive crushing. These two are crushing each other. Not just because it's cramped space. There is something intentional. There's some sort of MMA fighting, cage fighting going on between these two in this womb. And so she doesn't know. All she does is feel it. And so she prays, which by the way, that's what you see Isaac and Rebecca doing. It's praying all throughout. And she prays, why is this happening to me? God, what's going on? What are these these little demons doing inside of me? What is this? And the Lord answers her in 23, gives her clarity. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Now, in other words, these aren't just two sons within you, Rebecca. These represent two nations. And these aren't just two babies fighting to share space in your womb. These are going to be two kingdoms that are going to be fighting for preeminence on earth. But I'm making a call right now, Rebecca, about which one of these children will represent my kingdom, my kingdom promise, my kingdom line. And it's not as you would expect. I'm making a choice that goes actually against culture. Now we're gonna come back to that elected promise in just a moment, but for now, who are these kids? What are these two nations? What do they represent? So here's what we know. The firstborn twin that comes out, watch this, verse 24 When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. 
So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Firstborn twin, comes out red. Don't think Irish, it's not red hair. Think ruddy, think complexion. Think somebody who's piping mad. He's got this red complexion. He's also hairy, he's like a wookie, he's a manimal that comes out here. And so his parents name him Esau, which is the Hebrew word for hairy. But it's an interesting play on words. The word red in Hebrew is the word Adom, which ends up becoming the name of his descendants, the Adomites, or we would call it the Edomites. The word hairy in Hebrew is the word Se'ar, which ironically will become the name of the region in which the Edomites will dwell. Now Hebrews 12 tells us that Esau himself, we'll learn more about him next week, He became a man who was marked by sexual immorality, unholiness, and unrepentance towards God. The second born twin who comes out, though, notice he comes out grabbing the heel. That's got to be a little strange. Uh, When dad's down there watching this delivery come out going, well, that's interesting. And he's holding the heel of his brother on the way out. So whatever fight was going on in the womb is now manifested as they're coming out of the womb. As if the second born is grabbing Esau to try to pull him back in so he can take the lead. That's the image that we have there. So his parents name him Yaakov. Jacob means heel grabber. Also means supplanter. It's the idea of one who is grabbing so as to try to replace, which is very prophetic of some of the deceitful tactics that we're going to see Jacob do that will mark his life in the coming days, that he too is no angel in this text. So from the get-go, these two brothers are in conflict, and we're going to see this theme between brothers all throughout Genesis. We've seen Cain and Abel We've seen the sons of Noah conflict. You're going to see Joseph and his brothers conflict all the way down through history to the Sumlin brothers, all three of us fighting one another. I have literally a a deviated septum up here from the punch that my oldest brother slammed in my nose because he thought I was stealing his golf bag, which was mine that he stole. Not bitter about that, but I've got the marks to bear it. Conflict between brothers is inevitable. But this is different. This will not be a life, not only a lifelong conflict between these two brothers, as God prophesied in verse 23, this is going to turn into a millennia-long division between two nations. We already saw Esau's descendants are the Edomites. Jacob is going to be renamed in Genesis 32 with the name Israel. And his descendants will be the Israelites. So the Edomites and the Israelites, and they are going to be at war. And you see it throughout scripture. When Israel tries to find safe passage into the promised land in Numbers 20, it is the Edomites who refuse them entry. You're not getting in here. In Ezekiel 25, when the Babylonians are coming down to attack uh, uh, Israel or Judah, it is the Edomites who will join the Babylonians to attack them. The whole book of Obadiah is a warning to Israel about the threat of the Edomites. The Old Testament will close out in the book of Malachi 
with God confirming to Israel that their greatest opposition is the Edomites. Psalm 83 lists all of Israel's enemies at the very top are the Edomites. At the outset of the New Testament, when Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem, which by the way, which line is Jesus from? Jacob or Esau? Jacob is from the Israelites. When he is born in Bethlehem, there is a king ruling over that territory at the time named Herod who wants to kill Jesus and in fact is going to have all the young boys in the area of Bethlehem slaughtered. Herod, do you know what he is? He's an Edomite. And so this conflict is all the way through. And so we're meant to see this conflict among these two nations for sure, but what both we and the original readers were meant to see in this chapter is that this represents yet another threat to God's promise. And not just the threat of barrenness, but that of no less than a dozen nations who want to stop Israel from having God's purposes accomplished through them in this area. And just as God has been sovereign over all previous threats that we've seen in the book of Genesis, he is sovereign over this one as well. And the way that he proves sovereign over it is by his electing grace of choice. He is going to choose the path and the plan by which his purposes will be accomplished. And no one, when God makes a choice, can overhaul that choice. I want you to note in the midst of God's prophecy in verse 23 that there will be a conflict of these nations. There's also a promise based upon God's electing choice that Jacob will be the line through whom the promise will continue. Not Esau, not the Edomites. In the ancient Near East, it was custom that the firstborn son would be the one who would receive the inheritance. So on paper, you would expect that Esau who is born first, will be the one who will receive the inheritance of God's promise. But God said, we're not going to play that way. Rather, it is the younger, uh, who, or rather than the younger serving the older, it will be the older child who will serve the younger. Now we'll see in the next chapter that Jacob is going to try to, or at the end of this chapter, we'll see it next week, that Jacob is going to try to steal that privilege of being the firstborn for himself. And Esau is going to just sit by all too willing and lay it down. But ultimately, what God is going to tell us here is that it was never their choice to begin with. Didn't matter how much Jacob's going to try to deceive in order to get that birthright. Doesn't matter how much Esau's willing to lay it down for a bowl of soup. Doesn't matter. It was God's choice from the beginning how this promise would be accomplished. And we've seen this before, by the way, of setting aside order that would be normal in culture at that day. You would expect when God made the promise to Eve, one of your descendants is in whom the serpent crusher is gonna come through. Well, certainly it's Cain. She thought it was gonna be Cain. God said, we're not gonna play that way. It's not Cain. It's not even the second born, Abel. It's gonna be the third born, Seth. Same with Ishmael. He was the firstborn son of Abraham. Through Abraham's manipulation, God goes, we're not going to play by manipulation. I'm not taking Ishmael, I'm taking Isaac, child of miracle birth, of promise. 
You're going to see the same with Jacob's sons, his 12 sons. You expect Reuben, the firstborn, is whom the promised line will continue through. God's going to go, no, we're not going to play that way. I'm going to take Judah. He's going to see it again with Joseph and God's purposes with the youngest son over all the older brothers. You're going to see it with Joseph's sons. He's going to take Ephraim over Manasseh. You're going to see Jesse when he has eight sons and one of them is going to be king of Israel. God's not going to play by man-centered rules looking at external appearances. I think I'm going to take the youngest, the scrawniest son. I'm going to take David. That's who I'm going to take. What we see over and over in scriptures, all throughout Genesis especially, is that when God makes a promise, he also supplies a provision. And it's in a way that you would not expect. But it's one that comes by his sovereign choice for God's sovereign purposes. And specifically when it comes to the deliverance of God's people, the redemption, the salvation that God's people experience, God is always going to do so in a way that no man and no woman can get the credit. God is going to choose for the sole purpose that he would get the glory and we would receive all the good. When the original readers read this, they were to see that their inheriting the promised land had nothing to do with their ethnic qualifications because we got all kinds of different ethnicities in the line of Abraham. We got, yes, Chaldeans, Shemite. We got a Moabite that's gonna be in there. We have all kinds. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your birth order. It's not based on your military qualifications. You're gonna get outnumbered in just about every setting. And it's certainly not going to be based upon your moral qualifications because Abraham's line is filled with nothing but sinners. No, you are standing on the banks of the Jordan about to inherit a promised land for one reason only, God. God. He chose them and it came to be. And when God chooses something to be, there is no threat that can stand against us. Now, why is this a big deal for us? Because, you know, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8 and 9, when Paul is making the argument about the amazing grace of salvation that you and I have received in Jesus Christ, he uses this story of Jacob and Esau, of Isaac and Ishmael, and God's sovereign choice as an illustration of how we came to be saved. God's choice, Paul shows in Romans 8 and 9, of Isaac and Jacob was not predicated upon their own doing. It was predicated upon God's mercy and God's grace. It's not as if God had 10 years under his belt to watch good little Jacob obey his parents and do his chores while his hairy little twin rebelled and God went, ah, I think I'll take him because of how good he is. No, that's, that's not when God elected him. No, God chose him while he was still in his mother's womb before he could do anything. It was never about his behavior, his religious upbringing, his moral character. It was about God's sovereign choice. And the same is true with us in our salvation. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter two. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, 
Why? Because you would boast if it was your own works. But when it's not about your works, but it's about God's choice, his gift, then it's about God whom we boast in. He chose you, Paul says. He gifted this salvation to you. Now, when did he choose you? Was it after giving you a couple of decades to finally shore up that morality and quit cussing and get your butt back in church and start doing good? No. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, this is when he chose you. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the earth. Were you around back then? No. Even before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, you know, Paul reiterates this in Romans 8 and 9. In the text where he uses Jacob and Esau as an illustration of his sovereign choice in our salvation, he says these words preceding it. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's Paul's way of saying from beginning to end, it's all about God. He predestined you from the very beginning that you would come to know Jesus Christ. You go, oh, here's that Calvinism again. Nope, look at the text. Calvin's name is nowhere in this Bible. It's not there. It's God's name. Over and over and over, from beginning to end, God's sovereign purposes to reach you cannot be thwarted. Because he chose it, he fulfilled it from beginning to end. Now, why did he do this? Why did God set up salvation in such a way that you would have nothing to do with it other than to receive it by faith? Two reasons. Number one, so that the only one who could ever get credit for that salvation is God, not you and I, who offers it to you as an act of grace and mercy not as an act of your earning. Let that sink in. God has given you salvation as a gift to be received, not as a work to be earned. You don't have to perform for God. You can step off that treadmill. He loves you with an everlasting love. Before you were even born, he knew you needed a savior. And so he set the whole thing up to provide you one and to reach down through history against every threat that was seeking to stop you from receiving it. And he found a way to get Jesus to you. And he determined that you would put your faith in him and receive him as your savior. Why? So that you wouldn't take credit for any of it. You would just relish in his grace. You would relish in his mercy. You would fall prostrate on your face and you would worship he did it so you would not take credit, so God would get all the glory. But secondly, so that once you receive that salvation, you can confidently know that on your worst days of defeat, that once he has you, he can never lose you. Because if he chose you, then you can't lose it. He's got you. 
He has got you. And that's why in the very next verse in Romans, Paul says these words, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then what threat could be against us? Who is out there that can come against the promises of God if he's already laid it out in his sovereignty? No, he who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, there is all kinds of persecution that's gonna come against you in this life. May even cost you your life. But does that mean that you've been separated from the love of God? No, in these things, We are all more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How emphatic is God that once he's got you, chosen before the foundations of the earth. I don't care if all of hell comes against you. Nothing's going to take you from me. I've got you. You can celebrate that. And I mean, no threat, no threat, not persecution, not your own sin, not your prodigling, not a national threat of other enemies around us. Not even a cancer diagnosis can take you from God's love. Amy Goodwin. Remember that. God has got you. You can never be separated from the love of Christ that he has elected for you. And so if you hear nothing else today, I want you to see from Genesis 25 how big our God is, how sovereign he is over all the nations, how sovereign he is from over all the threats and how his electing love has pursued you to draw you in by grace, not by works so that you can rest and relish in him. And if you have received Jesus Christ, and I just encourage you like Isaac of old, go find your Be'er Lahai Roy and just go do some worship with the Lord this morning. Commune with him, rest in him, relish in him, and then fulfill your ministry. It's not in vain. If you've yet to put your trust in Jesus, this may indeed be the very moment that the Lord in his sovereignty is calling you. Don't refuse him. Surrender in faith. Drop your pride. Drop your works-based and religious-based performance and surrender in full faith, believing God who loved you sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you so that your sins could be forgiven and he raised from the grave to give you new life because he loves you. So trust in him. Walk with him all your days and knowing that the very end, he will most emphatically carry you into that promised land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that your sovereign election, it's not just a doctrine 
that is meant to trigger in us anger against supposed unfairness or injustice. No, it is a remembrance and a reminder of your sovereign purposes in the world of just the lengths you will go, how far you will go to demonstrate your great love for your people. Help us today to know that no matter what threat may come, you've got us. Hold us fast in your love for your glory and certainly for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.